This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. The term hijacking goes back to Prohibition days. When gangsters would uh, stop trucks carrying moonshine and they'd come up to the guy in the cab with their pistol and point in their face and say, hold your hands high, Jack. And they'd take all the liquor and, and drive off with the truck. But in the early days of commercial air travel, the thought that someone would hijack a plane was scarcely even considered. When they created government oversight of aviation in 1958, the congressional law that did that did not make hijacking a crime because no one had foreseen that anyone in, in a country like America, where theoretically if you wanted to go somewhere, you could just buy a ticket to go there, no one assumed that any American would ever do this. And Brendan I. Kerner, author of The Skies Belong to Us, Love and Terror in the Golden Age of Hijacking, says that the design of airport terminals reflected that. It's hard to fathom now, but you could literally you know, get out of a taxi at the curb and walk through the terminal, walk onto the tarmac to the top of the boarding stairs, and sometimes onto the plane itself without a ticket, without showing anyone your identification, certainly without anyone searching your person or, or, or your luggage in any way, shape, or form. So it, it was a very much similar to getting on a train, and that was by design by the airlines. Then, starting in 1961, an epidemic of hijackings began. It really was an epidemic, and I mean that in saying that the, the virus, the behavioral virus mutated over time, where kind of the basic features of these hijackings changed. The first phase of skyjackers all wanted passage to Cuba. May 1st, 1961 was the first American hijacking. Perpetrated by Antulio Ramirez Ortiz. He was kind of a uh, somewhat mentally disturbed electrician in Miami who, who got on a Key West-bound flight and uh, announced with a holding a knife to the pilot's throat that he had been hired to assassinate Castro, Fidel Castro, and wanted to go there to warn Castro about this. Back in Miami, after their unexpected side trip from Houston to Havana, our crew and passengers of the fourth hijack incident involving a U.S. airliner. In the second phase, the skyjackers broadened their horizons to more distant lands. My favorite example is a man named Rafael Minichiello, who was an Italian-American Marine who actually went from Los Angeles to Rome, uh, where he was hailed as a hero upon landing and actually ended up only doing 18 months in prison because the Italians refused to extradite him or actually charge him with hijacking. And he actually ended up after that um, signing a contract to start a spaghetti western film. (laughs) Very good-looking guy. Then skyjackers morphed into classic kidnappers demanding ransom. The man who started this was a man named Arthur Gates Barkley, an unemployed truck driver, had a dispute with the IRS, and he actually hijacked a plane from Phoenix to Washington, D.C., where he demanded $100 million uh, in cash to be given to him by the Supreme Court because he was enraged they hadn't taken his tax case. So that kind of set off this last phase of the epidemic where people started asking for tons of money and gold bars and crates of liquor and cigarettes and and anything their heart desired. 100,000 in cash, getaway car. And I want the letter M stricken from the English language. And all the while, hijacking was never considered that serious a threat by the airlines or the passengers, really. It was more of an inconvenience than anything else. The assumption on the part of passengers was that, well, we know the airlines will fly us down to Havana. 
The hijack will be taken off the plane. We'll maybe have to spend a night in Havana. We'll be put up in a hotel. Maybe buy some cigars and, and rum for our relatives. And go see the sex show with Fredo and Johnny Ola. We'll have a good story to tell uh, at the next cocktail party back in the U.S. It was taken lightly. Because the notion that this could really be something destructive and turn into mass murder was not something on people's minds at that time. And because the skyjackings weren't especially violent and the passengers weren't yet demanding extra security, the airlines fought to keep things exactly as they were. The airlines were scared. They thought that if they treated all their customers kind of like criminal suspects because they were merely flying, that people wouldn't fly anymore, that people would drive to their destinations instead. So the airlines put up a lot of roadblocks. Whenever someone, especially in government, mentioned the concept of having physical screening of all passengers, they would shoot that down, um, use all their, their lobbyist muscle to shoot that down. They really forced the FAA's hand to come up with the weakest, uh, most tepid security improvements. The FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, is the U.S. government body that is responsible for the safety and regulation of civil aviation. And this was all in the name of, well, we can put up with some hijackings, and those cost us, however, 20, 30 grand per hijacking in terms of lost convenience and whatnot. Or they could pay millions and millions on x-ray machines, screenings, and security personnel. For the airlines, uh, the smart financial choice was clear. Uh, Put up with periodic hijackings, comply totally, and keep the customer experience on the ground the same. But clearly something had to be done. If the airlines were unwilling to consider mandatory screening and checkpoints inside the terminals, some less intrusive and somewhat zanier solutions had to be considered. So in 1968, the FAA created a special anti-hijacking task force um, to come up with some solution that would be palatable to the airlines. And they actually opened it up for public comment. They invited the public to submit suggestions about how this could be done. The most common suggestion was complete capitulation. Quote, provide free transportation to Cuba for those persons leaving the United States, end quote. But another tactic that was seriously considered by the Federal Aviation Administration was to build a phony Havana airport in South Florida. So the idea is that at this time, all the skyjackers wanted to go to Havana. And so you'd kind of just fly them out over the water and then turn back and, and land at this fake airport and arrest them when they got off the plane was the big idea. It turned out to be too expensive, it, it cost prohibitive, so they couldn't do that solution. But there were also a lot of delightful technical solutions whose patents are so much fun to read. There was a hijacker ejection seat. There was also one patent for an injector seat, which would have a, quote, hypodermic injection apparatus arranged for driving the needle of a hypodermic syringe through the seat cushion into the passenger to instantly sedate or kill the passenger. Oh, humans. The more you act like Wile E. Coyote, the more I love you. There was a trap door that was patented that would go right outside the cockpit and lock the hijacker in kind of a plexiglass chamber so they could be, they could be uh, brought to justice when the plane landed. The public proposed that pilots depressurize the aircraft or expel sleeping gas throughout the cabin so that everyone falls asleep and the crew would go out with oxygen tanks and disarm the hijacker. Uh, one that I loved actually was giving all the passengers boxing gloves and making them wear boxing gloves the duration of the flight. And, and the theory being that you can't hold a gun if you have boxing gloves on your hands. Of course, then there would be an epidemic of extremely ill-advised boxing matches at 30,000 feet. 
But the, the real thing the FAA ended up going with was this behavioral profile. Now, here's the one thing about the, the airline terminals. There was one place you had to halt generally, and that was at the ticket agent to get a boarding pass or to purchase a ticket. There are many more tickets purchased on site at that time. So this was the one choke point in the terminal experience was the ticket counter. The FAA solution was to train the ticket agents in this 25 behavioral cues that might indicate someone is a potential skyjacker. These were things like not maintaining appropriate eye contact, not caring about your luggage, wearing military surplus gear. And if you saw any of these traits, behavioral traits in a customer coming through to get a ticket or a boarding pass, you would very discreetly uh, ask that they go to a room on the side and uh, be searched. This was not a good solution. I mean, the real problem is that ticket agents are not security personnel. They're dealing with hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of often very harried customers per day. And so they're not the people to really identify, even if you assume that these behavioral cue tip-offs work. And it turned out to be a bad assumption because plenty of skyjackers passed through without notice. It was meant to be a very low-impact solution at the one choke point that already existed in airports, and it was really a failure. But the solution that we all know they eventually came up with, screening everybody and their luggage with x-ray machines and requiring ID, all the things that make the airport the horrible place it is, wasn't seriously considered until one hijacking changed everything. This is a, a really forgotten, really pivotal moment in, in American security history. This is uh, November 1972, kind of the tail end of this year where there's just been really crazy hijackings, one after the next, people asking for huge amounts of money. Then you have these three uh, fugitives um, from the law who hijack a uh, Southern Airways Flight 49. They actually asked to be taken to Detroit. They had a grievance with the Detroit police, and they wanted $10 million. And they said if they didn't get it, they were going to crash the plane into the Oak Ridge National Laboratory near Knoxville, Tennessee. And at the heart of that laboratory is actually a uranium-235 reactor. All of a sudden, everyone realized that an airplane could be a weapon of mass destruction. In this case, threatening to turn eastern Tennessee into a nuclear wasteland. And that's really when the light goes on for the airlines and the government that the current situation is no longer tenable. Fortunately, they escaped cataclysm there. What happens is the, the airline doesn't have $10 million, they have $2 million. The hijackers landed in Chattanooga, Tennessee to pick up the money. And the hijackers by that time had actually uh, drunk all the liquor on the planes so were completely bombed. And they bring on 150 pounds of cash. It's a lot of money. And they think it's $10 million. And so they actually didn't bother to count it. It would have taken them forever to count that much money anyway. No one ever takes that into consideration. The hijackers eventually landed their plane in Havana, where Cuban authorities captured them. Crisis averted, but shortly after that, you have the executive order mandating universal physical screening to start on January 5th, 1973, and the airlines put up no fight that time. The airlines really wanted the government to provide airport security, but the government refused. And the airlines hired contractors to do airport screenings and run the metal detectors that the airlines desperately tried to avoid. And they put them in January 5th, 1973, and there's literally not a single hijacking in American airspace that year. There were 159 skyjackings in the U.S. from 1961 to 1972, and they really changed the nature of air travel. Even though most of this history is completely forgotten, along with the image of the deranged, 
desperate lone hijacker in military surplus clothing. The public conception of the hijacker changed dramatically in the 80s in response to specifically the um, TWA hijacking in Lebanon in 1985. And all of a sudden you had hijacking associated with Islamic terrorism, a real kind of um, scary prospect, you know, something that, that people didn't understand and was a real boogeyman for people at that time. So I think once we kind of had that image, that famous image of, of the pilot of that plane on, on the tarmac in Beirut with his captor, with the gun to his head, leading out of the cockpit. We completely forgot about these kind of more quaint hijackers who wanted to go to Havana because they had a bad experience in Vietnam, and started thinking about more of this, this really cr- scarier crime, and a crime of kind of a, an enemy we don't really understand or know very much about. And so that earlier era was forgotten, papered over, if you will, by, the, by this new image of who the hijacker was. And that image remains today, reinforced, of course, by the terror attacks on 9-11-2001. A date which was preceded by an entire decade free of any commercial airline skyjackings in U.S. airspace. After 9-11, the airlines finally got what they lobbied for back when mandatory screenings were introduced in 1973. The government took over security of our nation's airports and created the Transportation Security Administration. The TSA now calls the shots. Invisible is Sam Greenspan, Katie Mingle, Avery Truffleman, and me, Roman Mars. We are a project of 91.7 Local Public Radio, KALW, in San Francisco, and produced out of the offices of ArcSign in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. 99% Invisible is supported by our first-class passengers and by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own website or portfolio. Every time I do one of these spots, I like to highlight one of the fine people putting Squarespace to good use. And this week, you should check out unplayedzero.com. It's a podcast review and discovery site which gave 99PI 10 out of 10, so you know that they know what they're talking about. If you have a burning desire to review podcasts or genre fiction or jelly bean flavors, go to squarespace.com and set up your own site using their dead simple drag and drop tools. You can sign up for a free trial right now at squarespace.com. And if you decide to purchase, use the offer code invisible and save 10%. Squarespace, a better web starts with your website. And as always, we are supported by Tiny Letter, email for people with something to say. My boy Carver always has something to say. Here are his list of demands. I want an iPad. I want chicken tikka masala. And I want to be a scientist. Clearly, the Golden Age hijackers were not thinking enough about the long term. Tinyletter.com is free, easy, minimal, and powerful. The simplest way to send an email newsletter. From the great people behind MailChimp. We are a founding member of Radiotopia from PRX, the all-star collection of the most interesting, groundbreaking, beautifully crafted podcasts on Earth. You should absolutely be listening to all of them. Go to radiotopia.fm to find out more or search for Radiotopia in iTunes. You can find this show and like the show on Facebook. The staff tweets at Roman Mars, Katie Mingle, Sam Listens, and Truffleman. We have a great Tumblr that Avery curates. But right now, if you explore our website, you will find five dispatches from our image correspondent, Kate Joyce, who takes amazing photographs based on themes from our favorite episodes. Please do check them out at 99pi.org. 
Oh, I just want to tell you that the song you're hearing right now is a new track by our friend Melodium. If you've ever said to yourself, I really like the music on 99PI, then you're going to love listening to it without me ruining it with my jibber-jabber. The new Melodium album is called Terramay. It is out now on the always reliable Abandoned Building Records, which is also the home of the band Set in Sand, who is also fantastic. They have a new album out right now. It's great. Become a fan at AbandonedBuilding.com. Music 